Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. Okay, so my guest today for the Cappuccino today is an airline pilot, Captain. He's a mountaineer, he's climbed Everest, he's an adventurer, an extreme marathon competitor, it'd be fair to say, a keynote speaker. He's raised money for Cure Kids amongst other charities. Uh, he's been a plane crash survivor. He's an author, <laughs> TED Talk speaker, uh, Cure Kids ambassador, a high altitude marathon runner. He holds the world record for that as well. Uh, so my great pleasure to introduce, the, obviously, the perennial unachiever of the year, uh, Mike Allsop, to the Cappuccino Podcast. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, now, normally we start off with a pop quiz hotshot round dedicated to what I think is the world's greatest police movie, okay. which is Speed. Uh, that's because Keanu oh, yeah. Reeves is in it. Yeah, he's a good haircut. Yeah, and he's also John Wick. Uh, he's in Bill and Ted. And he's also <laughs> Neo from The Matrix. So if you can find anybody cooler than that, let me know. So, question for you. Uh, first question for you. Are you Maverick or Iceman in Top Gun and why? Uh, Maverick because my... Uh, nickname on Everest is Maverick. Nice, good work. <laughs> yeah. Who's the one adventurer that you actually look up to? Uh, Serena Fines. Nice. Uh, XSAS man, good boy. Yep. Uh, the last book read, and you can't have your own either. The last book read was by Kevin Guest, having a live, living an awesome life, I think it was called. Oh, yeah, yeah. cool. Uh, if I wasn't a pilot, I would be. A doctor. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Good work. Uh, the one thing that scares the shit out of me is heights. Yeah, I've read that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yet you climb Everest, right? Good work. So you grew up in a single parent home in Auckland. Yeah. What was that like as a kid? I was. It was hard. It yep. was very. Um, what's the word, way to describe it? I don't know. It was. I was very shy. Very underconfident. Um, would cry at the drop of the hat. You know, just really unhappy young man for quite a long time Yeah, when my, when my parents split up and it was really difficult because I had to step up as well my mum wasn't very well um, and when I was about 15 she broke a leg um, to put a spiral fracture on her tib and fibia so I had to step up and I remember getting an emergency driving licence and I couldn't drive very well and the policeman in those days that was doing it was really nice to me and gave me my licence um, and yeah, so I had to step up um, then, big time, and it was, yeah, it was difficult, very yeah. difficult. Now, I'm not saying that your dad did, but the question I'm going to ask you now is, because your book, uh, High Adventure, is obviously about being a great dad, and I forgot to mention in your intro that in your book you stress again and again and again that you're a proud, proud father, and from one proud father to another, well done on that, because I don't think enough people say it. Why do so many men run from fatherhood, do you think? I don't know. I think in some ways, I mean, I can't speak for other people, and there's always three sides to one story, you know. There's yeah. the, each person's side, then there's the actual truth. I don't know. I think sometimes it's the easy way out, and they just, if it all gets too hard. I know for a fact that when my dad left, it, him and my mum were fighting, and there was a lot of stuff going on, and he thought the children would be better off without uh, him without seeing that fighting. And if he removed himself from it, then that might be stop the fighting and it would be better off, which is really sad because I think an adult should be able to separate the two, separate his time with his children yep. and being a good, um, strong uh, father and then dealing with their relationship as well. It should be two totally different things with your ex-partner. Yeah, exactly right. And let's be honest, uh, 
we're about the same age, according to your book. I'm not going to tell you how old I am, <laughs> despite the fact I look 72. Um, men our age are a lot better dealing with their emotions than maybe 30 or 40 years ago, um, particularly when it comes to things like fatherhood, I think. I think so, yeah. absolutely. And we talk a lot more and we're encouraged a lot more about our mental health and we have legends to look up to now, like Sir John Kerwin, yep. who just turned mental health around for men in this country, to be honest with you. Yeah, not wrong. Did you think, like every other male... Did you think that your lad slash adventure days were over when your first oh, child yeah. arrived? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah. My first little um, baby was a surprise. Yeah. So, yeah, I wasn't ready to have a baby or settle down, and I honestly thought that was all over. Um, but I had a fantastic partner. She's amazing. And <clears throat> she had no intention of, of changing me or, no. or stopping what I was doing. But I came to those decisions myself to stop. Um, you know, serious, not like I wouldn't say life threatening because I've never gone and done something where I thought it was life threatening, but the elevated risk of climbing alpine climbing is yeah. something I thought um, children need a dad more than I need to go and climb that yeah. do those sort of things. And she's pretty cutting your wife as well, that way that she got the house deal. <laughs> I'm not going to give it away, you have to go and buy the book, but uh, she's pretty smart, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, when you wrote High Adventure, was it a matter of showing other dads that actually? You know what, life actually isn't over when you become a dad? Oh, in some ways. I, I knew I had another book in me, and the first one was all about, you know, my personal adventure and Everest and running seven marathons and a plane crash and a whole heap of other stuff. And I, know, I knew I had another book, but I wanted to be around family and love and, and adventure at the same time as well. And, you know, because we change in our lives as we get older and, and you know, things you know, change yeah. a little bit. Um, well, they change a lot. And I just wanted that to reflect in, in this book. Now, before we started this interview, you went, do you get any DM messages through? Here's the first one for you. <laughs> how did you sell, because this guy was like, how did he sell his first adventure as a dad to your wife? He said, because let's be honest, in every relationship, every male knows that if you want uh, something to happen, it's sort of a yin-yang thing. It's yep. like, yeah, you can have the shoes and I'll yep. get the sneakers or yep. that type of stuff. So yep. how did you sell it? So Wendy had been part, she had been part of all of my adventures in some sort of way. So if I was climbing Mount Cook, she would fly down to uh, Wanaka and we'd have a holiday afterwards. So, so we made it as much as possible, um, and we had good communication, that there was something in it for her yeah. as well. And it has to be something for her to look forward to. So she came to um, Kilimanjaro. Uh, sorry, Kilimanjaro. She came to Everest when, or to Kathmandu, to pick me up when I summited Everest. And that's where we sat down and and sort of talked about maybe having these adventures with this with with Ethan. Yeah. And it was all just part of the one on one. She knew. She calls it my emotional tank. That she knew if my emotional tank was full because I wasn't climbing anymore, I'd be a, you know I'd be a lot happier and more me um, so she encouraged me more and more and then the more she gave to me the more I gave to her and she has her own dreams and her own mountains like she loves Scottish castles mm -hmm. and single malt whiskies is her favourite <laughs> love her already haven't even met yeah. her love her yeah. Yeah. and so she she loves that part of it so then the more I encourage her and someone has to start it Yep. and I think we both started at the same time so our merry-go-round go, merry -go goes around the way of giving mm -hmm. and the more you give to someone else the more they give to you and then you more you want to give to them. Yep. And it works that way. Good work. So if I said to Wendy, she was in the back seat, but she hasn't, we've just got Erin from Unwin and Ellen in the back here, right? But if I said to Wendy, describe Mike to me, what do you think she would say? 
Well, she's had, yeah, she does it. And I made a little movie called Chasing Altitude, yeah. which is on Vimeo. And um, she just says, I'm very driven and very passionate about my family. Yeah. And when you come up with a brand new idea or you say, hey, I'm off doing this, yep. does she do what my wife does where she just basically rolls her eyes and go, you go and do whatever you need to do? No, she goes, that's a stupid idea, I'm not doing that. Go on. Yep. Um, but between spits, we, we used to go to Tyco in Kingsland when you know Ian yep. used to own it. And we used to sit at this one spot and it was our dream table. We used to order sake, order our little food and we used to come up with dreams. And we used to write them down. And now as a couple, every New Year's, uh, beginning of the year, um, you know, the first couple of days of the year, we take a bottle of champagne, go to some little beach, normally we might go somewhere, and we sit down and we write all of our dreams and ideas, both of us, nice. down in a book. And then the next year we go back and have a look at it, and we've only been doing this a couple of years now, we've been doing it for a long time, but writing them down, and we'll go back and say, hey, we, oh look, we did that, or we didn't do that, or we changed our mind, and it, it works really well. Nice. And how many, as a percentage, roughly how many of them do you reckon you take off every year? Oh, probably 80%. That's, that's a good effort. Yeah. Yep. So when you first set out on Ethan's little trip, what were your extended family and wider circle of friends thinking? Were they going, Mike, you need to stay away from the beer or that's the last yeah. time you have the uh, sausages with the extra meat in them or yeah. what? They thought I was a little bit crazy. and But the, the interesting thing is, you know, I wouldn't say the naysayers. I'd say the people that were concerned or had different opinions just didn't know what I was doing. So they didn't they didn't understand it yep. properly. Yeah, so, that, so once they heard that it was, you know, very safe, you know, we, we only, we trekked to 11,500 feet over three days, where an adult normally takes two days, and then we stayed there, we didn't go any higher, we went on little day trips around the place, you know, I, I had 24-7 um, coverage with a doc back home to ring him up if anything happened, um, and I had doctor friends up there, so I knew what I was doing. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, I'm going to get his name wrong here as well, but Lama Geshe? Lama Geshe. Yeah, features quite a lot in your book, and I'm also guessing your life as well, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yep. Do you maintain maintain contact with him, or do you just see him when you see him? Or no, he passed away in um, February two thousand and eighteen. Yeah, and he. Um, so I went to. I was going to Nepal, um, and I went a couple of weeks early, and I went to his funeral, and so I was the only Westerner that turned up, and it was a bit sad actually because thousands and thousands and thousands of people all spoke about him on Facebook and how much he meant to them, mm -hmm. and one person Westerner turned up. Mm. And I sat on the side of a mountain, really steep mountain, with 200 Sherpa just sitting there. It was just absolutely amazing. And they cremated him. He was in a cremation chamber. Um, <clears throat> and as they cremated him, our five huge Himalayan eagles were circling above him. And the Nepalese and the Sherpas, that was amazing because they believed that's his spirit going up into the sky. So yeah. it was very, very special. And has he been, do you know <laughs> if he's been reincarnated yet or not? Yeah, he would have, but who knows. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, he escaped exactly. from 1950 in Tibet when the Chinese invaded, uh, and he came on the Dalai Lama's train, um, donkey train or yak train. Yeah. Dalai Lama went to Darjeeling, he went to Pangbashi. Yeah, it's interesting you say that thing about Facebook, because a couple of years ago when the Dalai Lama was here, I went, and I was in a fairly good position, I was watching everybody below drinking Starbucks and answering text messages on their phone, and I'm like, I think you might have missed it here, yeah. but hey, look, that's just me. Yeah. Then there is the Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. So it pops up a couple of times in your book. You're a pilot, you're an adventurer, and a man of fairly good character, I'd say. So I'm going to ask you the $64 million question. Does the Yeti exist, in your opinion? Without a shadow of a doubt. Right. Uh, and if so, what makes you think yes? 
So I'm a pilot. I'm sci I'm sci I believe in science. Yeah, of course you, know, you, do, you put yeah. the fossil fuel into the aircraft and it burns, produces thrust out the back, right? Yeah. So there is, uh, without a doubt, an animal that scares the Sherpas to bits. Yeah. Um, when I asked Lama Gershi about it, he's been there for, when I asked him, <clears throat> he'd been there for 57 years. He and his wife started having a debate. And she said, and I asked the son to translate for me, he said, oh, Mum's saying that Lama Gershi is saying that, um, Mum's saying that the Yeti attacked um, her sister at the back door uh, 10 years ago, and Lama Gershi is saying, no, it was only five years ago. So, an Oxford University professor sent a team of people up, mm -hmm. and there's a big documentary about it on mm -hmm. Netflix, and they went up and they went to base camp and looked for the Yeti. Well, the Yeti hasn't been seen there for uh, you know, decades, five decades. But he got three samples of a, of what they thought was the Yeti. One guy in Bhutan saw a Yeti coming out of a tree, and he hid, and when it ran off, he on his back legs, yeah. he went into the tree and grabbed his fur, because mm -hmm. there was some fur there. He sent that to Oxford University, the professor came back and said it was an unknown species of animal, highly related to a Tibetan brown, a Tibetan blue bear and a polar bear. Right. Then he got another specimen from, there's a stuffed one somewhere in India, but no one knows, it's, yeah. it's a secret. And an adventurer managed to get a, a bit of it, because he became friends with this village. And he gave that to the Oxford University, and it's the same species of animal, and they're 1,800 miles apart. Uh, yeah. But they're the same species of animal, and it stands on its back legs, right? So that's really interesting. So this guy, he's a, you know, the scientist, he goes, without a shadow of a doubt, there's an unknown species of animal. Nepalese call it the Yeti. Someone else calls it the Chemo. Well, it's called the Chemo in, in Tibet. The, uh, the Indians call it something else, and so the Pakistanis. But he took the same technology to America with the Sasquatch. <laughs> and he got 29 of the finest Sasquatch samples of scat, hair, whatever. <coughs> and he said, I only need one to prove that the Sasquatch exists and every single sample was matched to a known species of animal. There you go. So, so okay, all right. Now, speaking of Yetis, and I'm not going to give the full story away because, like I say, it's in your book again. The hand replacement for the temple, right? When you spoke to Rob Fife and Sir Richard Taylor about replacing a yeti's hand slash and a little bit of a skull uh, what did you want to actually achieve with that replacement because I know that it was important for the temple because they were losing people coming into the temple and having a look and obviously the chance to get not because we know that that's not important but revenue from visitors wanting to have a look but was that what you wanted to achieve yeah. for them? Or, yeah. Yeah. Just to give back to the community, the the Sherpas are very proud people. If you give someone something, they, you know, I, I gave gave a person fifty dollars. I had tea in his house, and I just wanted to give him some money to help him. Very very poor and a very old man, and he tried to give me one of his blankets, yeah. and he only had two blankets. And so, you know, I wanted to find a way to give to them just so they can still they don't feel like they have to. Um, give something back to me yeah and so I thought if I remade these things um, that they I could give them a little income back again and it works worked perfectly it's yeah. fantastic now at any stage did Sir Richard Taylor or Rob Fife go hang on Mike you want to do what because <laughs> let's be honest it isn't like the most normal request is it no um, excuse me Mr Lord of the Rings can I have a Yeti's <laughs> hand and a skull made because no. I want to take him up to a monastery <laughs> or a temple up in uh, Kathmandu. So. I think no, Rob. See, Rob Fiveson, he's an amazing guy, and he's he's it's so awesome with people. He <clears throat> was standing behind me in a pub, listening to me tell someone else about it, showing someone in a book, and he goes, "Hey, we could do that." And because I said one day I want to do this, and I went, "Oh," I said, "We don't have time." 
And he goes, yeah, we do. I'll introduce you to Sir Richard and see what he says. I said, oh, I don't think he'd be interested, would he? I said, and I said three negative things. And then he said, he just kept saying, oh, we can do this, we can do this. And I thought, man, stop being so negative. Aye. And just, you know, I went, yeah, great. And Sir Richard came back the next day, said, send us all the photos. Great. A week later, I flew down specially to Wellington to pick it up. Yeah. Can't argue with that, that's great. Um, you've had some amazing adventures with your kids. What do you think you've learnt about them on those adventures? Just sort of roughly within sort of four or five words for each of your kids. And, oh, well, they're all individuals. Yep. So Ethan is sort of the trailblazer. Yep. He is, yeah, he's a trailblazer. Maya is just solid. She's very, she's amazing. She really is. I've got to be honest, her. when I read the book, I thought, like, Maya reckons the one that's got all the spunk. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah. She's like, yeah, I can get this done. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, we just sit there, and all, all three of them are saying, we just sit there sometimes where we have a really nice bond. We don't even have to talk sometimes. Yeah. Um, and Dylan is he's a go-getter because he's extremely determined probably the most determined of all of them yeah uh, when he focuses <laughs> so hey that's young guys for you yeah. though isn't it yeah yeah that's all good <laughs> and has maya forgiven you for uh saying that the goats were off to a place called slaughter <laughs> uh, yeah. so i look on her face when i said it oh dear. yeah yeah no that was quite good that was a good piece of dadhood i thought <laughs> it's on a knife knife edge that one now there are lots of people that will say hey look that's okay for mike but i can't afford to go to Kathmandu or i'm unable to climb everest as a dad what would you say to them those people that you know said oh that's okay for mike you know he's a yep. he's all this what would you yep. say to those dads so going to nepal is I reckon it's probably the same price as going to Australia on a holiday. Once you get there, there's nothing to spend your money on. It's the 17th or 12th poorest country in the world. Yeah. Um, so for $25 a day, you now that's basically all you need. Yeah. So it's just an airfare to get there, and the airfares are about 1,200 bucks. So these adventures in this book, you know, they're not something that we decided to do. Um, and then next month we just took the money and off we went. We saved up for them. Um, they're over, you know, sort of a decade and a half. And if someone's passionate about it, they can do it as well. Yeah. You know, um, it's just little steps along the way. Um, there's nothing to spend your money on. You know, when right. you go into those mountains, you can take all the money you want. There's nothing to spend it on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're right. There's no. There's no. Um, you know, Dream World or no. You know, shopping yeah. malls, roller coasters or anything no. else like that. Uh, and. Just for those of you who are listening to this and have decided, you know what, if Mike can, I can, make sure you get a copy of High Adventure because it'll also tell you where to get the cheapest uh, climbing equipment as well in it. That's all well, I'm saying. The other thing is is the whole world, I reckon, revolves around relationships. It's the relationships you form and that you keep with people. Uh, and then when you want to go, when you want sponsorship, I've only asked for sponsorship twice and I've received it three times. Yeah. Really, really good sponsorship. And that is because of the value I've given to those companies mm -hmm. where it was almost impossible for them to say no. Yeah. And I exceed the expectations as well. So instead of going with a scattergun and emailing 200 companies asking to, for me to, just for example, sponsor me to Summit Everest, <clears throat> I'll just go and ask one or two mm. and then give them so much value that they can't, like Icebreaker for example, we have a great relationship, they give me a lot of gear and in return, um, you know, I use all the gear, I've used it for all of my climbing and it is, it is without a doubt the, the best. Now I can't say this because police aren't allowed to endorse stuff, but I've done dog mushing up in the Yukon. Oh, yeah. I tested Icebreaker's theory about you know how it doesn't stink. So for a week and a half solid, I wore their gear running around after dogs and being thrown off the back of sleds and everything else. It doesn't stink after uh -huh. a week. That's pretty good. Uh -huh. uh, then just because you're bored, you decide to do the seven seven 
seven project, <laughs> don't you? Uh, thanks to Sir Renov, Sir Renov Fines, who I've got to say, when I read that bit in your book where you said, you know, Sir Renov Fines said he did this, and I'm thinking, yeah, and I remember reading his book when him and his partner decided they were going to go across the South Pole as well, but you decided to take the easy option. Um, can you explain to the listener what the 777 project was about? So the 777 project was seven marathons in seven days on seven continents of the earth. And I read that and I was looking for, I have these three pillars that I sort of function under. One is I allow myself to dream. Then once I know it, and then I find, then I find my passion. And then, so I was in that stage. I was just dreaming and I, was, and I, I call it feeding my funnel. And when I say feeding my funnel, I put all these ideas into it, like a big funnel above my head, good ideas, and then they get more and more refined. And I was just looking for something and I read his book and I thought, that's me. And, but I'd never run a marathon in my life. Yeah, 16 Ks was the longest you've done, eh? Yeah, and so I, I went out and I um, got myself a sponsor, got a logo, a website, all this sort of stuff, and then I went for a run and everything fell apart. Mm-hmm. My knees hurt, my back hurt. I couldn't run. I walked back with the tail between my legs. But the second part of I do with my three pillars is I make sure I have a really strong plan and I write it on a, on a, on a whiteboard so I can see it and touch it and show people it. And then that way, I and it becomes real. So I stood in front while I sort of, you know, had my hands on my knees, panting, looking at the board, going, oh, "I know what I'm going to do." And I'd written down and all these smaller, smaller parts, like a big sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, just broken down to tiny parts. And uh, one of them was to learn to run off YouTube. So I learned to run off YouTube, mm-hmm. and I turned into a really good runner. Mm. And but it has to be good for someone else as well. Lama Gershi said to me years ago, if everyone just gave a little bit more than they take, the world's a much better place. Mm. So I went to Kids Can uh, New Zealand, and they were fantastic, helping underprivileged Kiwi kids. Yep. And so I'd be running uh, and raising money and awareness for them. Great stuff. Uh, and then there were issues when you went to do the Seven Seven Project, weren't there? Especially with your health, <laughs> like you just said. Yes. But you actually had a bit of a serious injury beforehand. Uh, what are you like as a patient? Are you a grumpy bear or just like a trapped tiger? Oh, no, I don't know. I'd have to ask Wendy that one. Yep. Um, Do you get frustrated at like being injured? I mean, I know that there's lots of people who are active, myself included. You know, we get injured and it's like you've lost the leg because you're so frustrated you can't do something. Well, I'm more, my, my biggest problem if I look at it would be I'm super, super fit and then I don't do anything for a while and I'm super fit and so I have these big peaks and big lows and I've got to iron those out as I get older yeah, yeah. Um, so the, yeah no I think I'm okay I'm very good with my um, my nutrition my supplements I really believe that we can't get everything from our diets um, so I take a lot of supplements and and I'm sponsored by a company called Yusana and they're just awesome yeah so how do you mentally prepare for something like Pro, uh, Project 777, given the fact that you haven't really done a half marathon before? <laughs> I know Lisa Tamadi came on board and gave you a little bit of a hand. Yep, no, yep. she was amazing. Um, yep. But what's going on in your top two inches when you're training? Is it like, geez, I've got to get this done, I've made the commitment to people, or is it... A little bit. I had to fall in love with running, yep. and then I worked out I hated running, which was great, because as soon as I worked out I hated it, um, and that wasn't my driver. My driver was adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, then running was just a vehicle to get it. Yeah. And once I worked that out, it was fine. And now, when you run, do you enjoy it, or are you like? Um, no, I, I don't know if you've yeah. Because <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of a man called David Goggins. No. You need to read his book. Uh, he's an ultra marathoner who helped out Lisa with her running, uh, and he's an ex Navy SEAL. But he talks about going into the deepest parts of his soul, um, and they're dark and just basically running. 
Uh, he's quite scary. Um, when you run and you say you hate it, is it just one foot in front of the other or is yeah. it just yeah? Yeah, now it is. When, when I was running the 777, I was doing it with purpose and I was listening to motivational stuff and I was listening to Tony Robbins and a whole heap of other stuff, which was really cool. And I actually found that was my personal space. It was great. Yeah. Because for the project, there was so much going on. Um, <clears throat> the hardest bit was trying to manage everything uh, as soon as I stopped running because I didn't have a big team with me. I went on my own. Yeah. And so that was, that was quite hard. Um, and rather than focus on uh, marathon number one, which started off in the Falkland Islands, yep. or number seven, where you had hundreds of people running alongside with you, <laughs> yeah. let's talk about what most cops would talk about, the, the grind at number four and five. All right? um, number five, is it the yeah. worst? And what was, what was going through your mind when you were at that sort of four or five stage, you know, so it's like, geez, I've still got more to come here. The number five was in Morocco, and we started at five o'clock in Casablanca in downtown Casablanca and it's not a romantic city like you think it is <laughs> and we had to run through the night and it was, wasn't that safe to tell the truth I was running loops around a McDonald's 5k loops around a McDonald's and a friend of mine was waiting for me there and my feet started to hurt yeah. and what I was doing is my body was leaching um, all the magnesium and calcium out of my bones and that's why my feet were hurting and because we asked a doc afterwards and so it was very very painful it felt like somebody had got my feet and just smashed them with hammers for hours and hours and hours yeah. um, and as soon as I started taking some calcium and magnesium it stopped so that was it was just a matter of just at one stage it was just power pole to power pole yeah yeah which and is I'll, I don't know if you've heard of Sandy Barwick the ultra marathon runner who's a New Zealander yeah. she's same thing uh, when she was running she always used to say one lamp post the next lamp post yeah. and that's all she did yeah. yeah yeah and I did that quite a few times in Chile when I was sitting at three o'clock in the morning with a blown knee I was a bit upset and I um I had like 50 stray dogs around me, and I saw I'm going to get that next lamppost, and off I went. Yep, great stuff. So your adventures have now become a bit of an all-sop tradition. How disappointed would you be if one of your kids yeah, spun around and said to you tomorrow, actually, let's go to New York City for a week. Um, I'm kind of over the whole adventure <laughs> thing. All I want to do is sit in a cafe somewhere, eat a giant piece of pizza, have an espresso, and then go to Times Square. You'd be like, what, what would your reaction be to that? Well, they do. That's, what, that's the one that just walked past yeah, yeah. the back of the car. That's yeah. what he wants to do. Oh, cool. Yeah, he wants to just, just go and travel and chill out. But at the same time, he just says to me the other night, he just sat down and put his arm around me and he said, I really want to go back to Kilimanjaro as well. Yeah. So they're all individuals. And I reckon kids are like rivers, man. You can't change the direction of them at all. They're flowing. You could maybe put a couple of rocks on one side and maybe make it slightly ripple towards one way, but they're actually on their own path. Yeah. And the best thing I can do is just open their eyes to it, you know, show them a good example, um, and then, yeah, and try and bring them up as best you can. Now, you, like I said before, you grew up with, without a dad in your childhood. What would you say to all the kids who are in the same position that you were then? as a teenager now to them believe in yourself just have belief in yourself believe in yourself just you know focus on believing that you can do stuff um, there's no such word as can't is what I was brought up with there's the youngest one yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's no such word as can't uh, don't be afraid to fail the yeah. fear of failure has killed more dreams than actual failure ever has because yeah. people just don't start oh I can't do that because I'm going to fail yeah. well then your dream's already dead, you haven't even given it a go. So the only failure is not trying. Get out, give it a go. And if the other thing is, if <clears throat> if you don't give up, I honestly believe that you can't fail mm. because you're always working towards that goal, no matter what it is. Mm. And I know that you, just like lots and lots of people I've read about who are really high achievers, and I'll throw you in that bracket because you are, 
um, the writing down and that confronting you every time you see it in the morning and that type of stuff is a is a big thing. It it is. I go through phases. Like I got a really awesome journal called um, uh, Best Self Company. And it's only done for three months because they reckon you can't do it for more than three months. And then you write everything down in it and that sort of stuff. I did that and it sort of lasted a month. Yeah. You know, you've got to find what works for you because we're all individuals. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some people are great with journals. Other people are terrible with journals. I know for a fact, I did, the biggest biggest change for me would have been doing a little course on um, iTunes and it's called Eat That Frog. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's by Brian Tracy. It's six bucks and... It stops procrastination and what it does is you do your hardest task in the day first and you pretend it's a little green live frog and you've got to eat it the more you look at it the harder it's going to get so you just do the hardest task first list all your tasks do the hardest one first then you um, have endorphins are released and you feel good and you get into a state of flow you can only stay in flow for maybe 45 minutes to an hour and then you or maybe a little bit longer and you try and do two or three of those sessions a day and that's where you get most of your work done great looks like i'm eating frogs tomorrow thank you very much Mike. <laughs> um now when you do your writing process do you keep journals when you do your adventures or do you come back and go right i'm going to brain dump on all of this and write it out as best as i can throw it out to a couple of people maybe throw it out to wendy so that she can get me right with the dates and the timeline and everything else or how do you um, a lot of it was in my head uh, I did I kept journals as well yeah yep. absolutely um, but then you know with Alan Owen the, the writing process I've got a fantastic editor called, called Nick uh, McCoy and she's awesome and so I would just <clears throat> brain dump it onto an iPad yeah and I can type with two fingers and I describe it to my kids when they say wow dad you wrote a book I'm like it's like eating a chocolate elephant you know, one bit of time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and yeah. they go, and you know, I, I would um, sometimes force myself to write 500 words and then I'd get into flow. Yeah. The way I go. This time I found myself um, only being able to write in a cafe because I had to get rid of all the noise around me and then focus, and that really helped me. Yeah. And so I would just leave at 2 o'clock in the afternoon uh, if I had a day off uh, during the week, and I would, well, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, sorry, I'd write for two hours and go and pick the kids up from school. Yeah, yeah. And unlike high altitude with high adventure, were you a little bit worried about the fact that this book might become sort of a guide to fatherhood, if you know what I mean? Because I know that there's <laughs> lots of people who will read this book. They'll probably get it for Father's Day as well, and it's a great book. They should. Um, but are you a little bit worried now that people are going to come and see like your TED Talks or everything else and they're going to be like, so Mike, tell us about being a great dad and this. Because, I mean, let's be honest, all dads, myself included, make some horrible clangers of decisions. Oh, yeah. It's just part of being human. There is no book yeah. or guide for it. Um, so were you worried by that or not? Or it didn't even cross your mind? No. Well, yes, you know, it has crossed my mind, especially the last couple of, um, well, the last week or so with the media have been asking me about advice for parenting. I'm not a parenting expert mm. by any way, shape or form. Yeah. You know, that guy's called Nigel. He's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm, but I'm am an expert in taking kids on adventures, and taking kids to Nepal and to Kilimanjaro, and you know I can tell people how to do that really well, and and you know really safe as well. Yeah. So I just focus on on those, and I'm happy to share my experiences. Yeah. But um, we're like every family. I mean, my grass needs a mowing. The kids won't go out and do it for me. Uh, hey, like, yeah, that, that is what it is. <laughs> Doesn't matter who you are, eh? you're still doing the lawns. Um, in your book, you say quite a bit, uh, I've started to think about being a good dad. Um, and there's this famous sheriff from the States who, whenever he 
has his police department um, get young juveniles, as they call them in the States. The first thing that goes through the police officer's heads, he says, should be, where is that child's father? So if I said to you, with your thinking about being a good dad, could you tell us three things that you think good dads should possess? Three things good dads should possess. Tough one, eh? Yeah. Um, first of all, being there for your kids. Yep. Being dependable as well, so that they know they can depend on you. That's the second one, I think. And the third one is just have compassion for them. Sometimes you can't fix their problems for them. Yeah. I never forget Maya. She'll kill me for saying this. Uh-oh. Is she kept saying to me? She wanted to talk to me, and she would talk. And then she said to me, I said, why are you talking to me about this sort of stuff? You should talk to mum about it. And she goes, no, Dad, she'll try and fix it. You just listen. Yeah. And I like that. That sort of made my heart melt, tell the truth. Yeah. And so I didn't have, and the stuff she was asking me, I didn't, no, I didn't know the answers to for her. And so I just listened. Yeah. And so I think they should have um, someone to listen. The other thing is, the kids need an example as well. Yeah. You know, So they have to look up to, they have to have an example to look up to. Firmly, firmly believe that you should not be your kid's friend. You should be a dad. I can be a friend when they're in their twenties and later, but at the moment I'm dad. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I fully, fully agree with that. And the other thing that you and I both agree with is, and that's from Parents Inc. And they do a marvelous job as well. But you spell love for your kids, T I E M E. Yeah, that's it, plain yeah. and simple. Yeah. All right. So, um, who are the top three people? These are some of the DM questions that inspire Mike Allsop in his life. And your kids and your wife aren't allowed. Because we know okay. that they're already there. Yeah. I know that Sir <laughs> oh, Ralph Fiennes is going to be one of them. Top three. Yeah. Who, who's one. the adventurer behind the adventurer, if you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, there's a guy called Kenton Cool, and Kenton's a legend. He's a friend of mine now. Yeah. And I knew him, and when I met him at On Everest, I was shaking when I was when I saw him. <laughs> I was like starstruck, and yeah. I ended up. Um, sharing base camp with him yep. and then you know sharing the same tent with him on the mountain after time yep. so him and I sort of you know I really like that guy he's really cool so he's one of the guys I look up to um, from the point of view uh, I read a book by, called the Winner's Bible and they get you to put take photographs of people yep. uh, you know, or cut photographs out and put them in of who you look up to obviously Sir Eben Hillary yep. and I like Sir Eben because he was humble he was passionate about the Sherpas he was a really cool down-to-earth person and when you hang around with the Sherpa people in their homes and with them, I get on amazingly with them, I've got some really close friends. Um, yeah, so th- he's probably the next one. Uh, Rob Fife would be one, a yep. person I really look up to in New Zealand. And that's three. These are three. Did you ever meet <laughs> Sir Edmund? I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I was lucky enough to, it was just amazing, humble as, humble as pie. Um, you wouldn't actually know who he was if he, oh, yeah. It was amazing. Anyway. Um, so, a question from my wife here, because obviously she's been to Kathmandu. She said, what's Kathmandu like now after the earthquake? Well, it's in your book, obviously, you talk about fundraising and everything else. But she said, you know, she said when she was staying there, people were giving up their beds so that her and her friend could stay the night in their house so they could raise money. And she said, you'd see the family of like four on one single bed and there'd be everything else. But mm. she said, those people have nothing, she said, as far as we're concerned. And she said... What is Kathmandu like now after the earthquake? Because she said, I can only begin to imagine, she said, and it wouldn't be a pretty picture. Well, so I went, uh, I had a job to go up to um, there for Discovery Channel, and I was helping them organise a, um, a production called Everest Rescue. Mm-hmm. That was actually one of my ideas in yep. the first place. 
So I went out, but it was Maya's uh, 11th birthday. Yeah. And I said, I can't go. And they said, we'll bring her. So it was a couple of months after the earthquake. Earthquake yeah. happened in April. We went up in August. And the palace wall was down. Everyone was active. There was no one sitting around. They were all building and fixing stuff. We're Tamil. Um, and the couple of sort of suburbs around that area, uh, you, could, you know, they could see damage, but there was no huge buildings down. Mm-hmm. Um, but we went out to other parts of Kathmandu where the damage was even, you know, really significant, really was. It was more out in the villages as well where the whole landslide came down and wiped out whole villages. That was the, that was the worst part. But the Nepalese are extremely resilient. Yeah. They are just really resilient, and especially the Sherpa people. Yeah. Right? When you go to their villages in Pangbushe, every single family has lost someone in the mountains, probably on Everest. Yeah. And in the book I talk about Myers helping these old widows, and there's eight of them left now, and they've lost their fathers, their husbands, and all of their sons on Everest. Mm. And so... You know, they're very, very resilient people. Really yeah. are. What advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about climbing Everest? <laughs> well, a couple of things. Um, do it the, the proper way. Go and get some professional help. Yep. St- right from the beginning. Right? So there's two things. There's, you've got to have two roads. One, start a company. Yep. Start writing a book. Yep. Right? And then just keep a track of all your expenses. Um, so that when you are ready to go and write your book, then you can, uh, and you're ready to go and pay Mr. Taxman, which everybody has to, yeah. then there's the fair um, expenses that come with that. So that's yeah. the first thing you go and do. Second one is go and give Adventure Consultants a call. Yeah. They are the world's expert, and they're in our backyard, they're down in Wanaka. Give them, give them a ring, they're amazing. Yeah. And talk to them and tell them what you want to do. Um, and then be passionate about it. And then I reckon it's a massive journey and it will change you um, for the better, uh, probably. And just never, ever, ever give up. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Get some really good experience behind you. Make sure that you know how to look after yourself on that mountain. Yeah. Um, Now, with that, um, recent pictures of Everest and the queues going up to the peak. What are your thoughts on that? Because I don't know if you've seen it, but recently there was a documentary by one of the chaps from SAS Who Dares Wins called Ant Middleton yep. um, who climbed up Everest yeah, yep. and he almost died because the queues were that mm. bad and he said it's the worst I've ever been he said I've been in some hairy situations he said but I just could not get down from that mountain because of the queues yep. um, what are your thoughts on the sort of commercialisation of the peak of Everest do you think they should stop do you think they should keep going or do you think they should just do what, you, um, what obviously you're doing where people go to the base camp and they can make the choice of I'm not saying that you say, oh yeah, let's go up the let's go up the peak now. But um, they can stand at the base camp, have a look at Everest, and maybe in a couple of years' time, go. Actually, you know what? That's something I want to achieve. Well, the Nepalese. I mean, you know, Nepal is very poor, so they get most of their income from um, tourism, and most of it's from Everest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, you know, they don't want to cut down the numbers. No. That happened. That queue. I've seen another queue worse than that. Yeah. Uh, or photos of a queue worse than that. No one's picked that up yet. Um, a couple of years ago, and that's when the mountain was so out of condition that they couldn't climb the Lotsi face. They had to go up Nupsi, which is the mountain next to Lotsi, run across the Lotsi face because the rocks are coming down, and then climb Everest. So, um, you know, I think, and then that caused all the queues because everybody was squished into a very short weather window. I mean, the weather window is only 14 days. Two, mm. 10 to 14 days mm-hmm. and if you get bad weather then everyone's going to be trying to, you know, to climb at once I don't think the numbers have changed that much I think when I went there was 500 people at base camp and that's what I've heard similar numbers now Yeah. so 
all I know is Kenton Call, he was sitting at home, tucked up, back in England, already summited when that queue happened. Yeah. So, and all the, and I've heard from other people as well, all the onto it um, outfitters and guiding companies weren't climbing that day because they knew there was going to be big queues. Yeah. So, and the other thing is if you are in a queue and you're unfortunate enough to be stuck there and that is the difference between life and death, well, then you've pushed the limit way too far already. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's... Yeah, but it's easy to say sitting here in a nice warm place. Exactly, no, love, we'll take it. It's all good, yep. So um, so what's next for Mike Allsop? Cause for quite, me or for the kids? No, for you, because oh. quite clearly you don't sit on your laurels and do nothing, right. and you don't strike me as the type of person that will sit in a rocking chair uh, and go, actually, you know what, I've just sort of hit the sort of, not the downward slope, but I'm sort of in the middle, middle age now, and I'm just, I'll take no. it easy. Right, this, this stuff's just beginning. Yeah, yeah. You know, in sixty years time, all the kids are gone. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. No. So the next thing, personally for me, is um, when he said next year, uh, no adventures, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. I like his sense of humour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're going to a, a wedding. Uh, we've got a big wedding to, uh, when his brother's getting married. So we're going to go to a wedding in Ireland. Yep. So the year after twenty twenty one, I'm already planning to go and I'll guide a team to Everest Base Camp, mm-hmm. and then at the end of it, I'll stay on. Uh, Wendy will come up or the kids will come up I think they, they, a lot of them want to come and guide with me yep. so I'll take a team to base camp uh, but then I'm going to go back on a motorcycle adventure Nice. so it's a Himalayan um, motorcycle adventure and we're going to go to a valley called the Mustang Valley which is up toward the uh, western side of Tibet and there's a whole lot of sky caves and there's a huge uh, uh, sheer cliffs and they've got caves in them and there's 10,000 of these and only 600 have been explored and we want to try and explore some unexplored um, nice. caves so um, yeah this is your official invite you can come along if you want beautiful good to go. I'll it's, see if I can get it past my wife but November. yeah we'll see what I can do well what you do is how you sell it to your wife is you go I'm going to do this for about 10, 14 days, and then you fly up, and then we'll go to Thailand or something, or Singapore, or something uh, like that, and if you plan it that far in advance, and then divide it by the number of weeks, it's only, you know, 20 bucks a week. Yeah, nice, and I'm just thinking, <laughs> you quite clearly haven't met my wife, if you think the Yeti's scary, that's all I'm saying, but anyway, <laughs> love you a bit. Uh, yeah. Hey, now, the other question that I was going to ask you is, do you think that at any stage, if your kids can't turn around to you and say, this is a DM question, hey, Dad... You and me, top of Everest. Yeah. Would you be up for it? I mean, I know it's a big ask physically, especially as you get sort of a little bit older for the kids, and it also will be a big ask for them, but do you think that there's something that you would want to do? No, no, because uh, I'd never tell them no, because then they'd want to do it more. Yeah, of course they would, yeah. Um, Wonder I, who they get that from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, you wouldn't want your kids climbing Everest, tell the truth, because it's you roll the dice. Yeah. But in saying that, I'd go back in a flash. Yeah. I would be there tomorrow if I didn't have kids. Yeah. Right? I, I, and, and I, but I, my heartstrings aren't being pulled to go back because um, I've made that decision. It's fine. Yeah. But no, it's very, very um, full on. And the other thing is the climate's changing. So where is the... Uh, icefall used to be quite a shallow gradient to get up now it's receding back and it's getting quite steep and very unstable yeah. and so that would worry me so maybe the north side yeah. but if they were going to do it hey you know I, I can't stop them no. but I'd make sure they do it, did it properly I'd make sure they went with someone like a venture consultant yeah. and I'd make sure they went with somebody that really knew what they were doing they had the experience to go up there Right, final question for you, and it's the question we always do on the Cappuccino, so I can throw my book away, is this. Uh, the day of reckoning has come for Mike Allsop, and strangely enough, you're in your casket, but you can hear what people are saying about you. 
what would you like people to say about Mike? What would I like people to say? Yeah, what would you like them to say? Yeah. <laughs> not what will they say? Because it's a little bit, yeah, I'm sure if I'm there and I'd say, what will they say? It's not going to be tidy. But what would you like, like them to uh, say? I'd like them to say he gave more than he took in this life. To sum it up, that'd be it. You can't ask any more than that. Uh, Mike, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, keep up the great stuff. And especially, I think, keep up those great messages for dads. Everyone, I know that you have said that you didn't write the book. Uh, but for me as a dad, having read that book, it's pushed my scope out a little bit more as well. I think some people think that an adventure in fatherhood is actually just sort of going down to somewhere like Mount Eden. And if you, like you say, if you think big, then it's going to happen, isn't it? So awesome. thank you very much for being on the Cappuccino. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Cheers. Mike Allsop's amazing book, High Adventure, is now available at all good booksellers. And you can follow Mike at www.mikeallsop.co.nz. Make sure you go and check it out. He really is an amazing New Zealander. Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss his next podcast.